Hello, I'm Ethan Anthony, and welcome to Interactions, a podcast about law and religion and how they interact in the world around us. Imagine this scenario. There's an American who's a part of a congregation of a Protestant church. While attending church, this American enters a discussion with a few leaders of that church about the meaning behind a certain scripture. This discussion develops into a disagreement, and this disagreement results in the American being excommunicated from the church, with little to no opportunity to defend his position within the congregation. With all this information in mind, I ask, do you think this is fair? Or does the American deserve due process within the church, and if so, why? Why is it expected, specifically in an American context, that religious law follow the same procedures as secular law? It's this scenario and this final question that form the backbone of The Rule of Law, an essay a part of the collection At Home and Abroad, written by Winifred Fowler Sullivan. Published in 2021 by Columbia University Press, At Home and Abroad, The Politics of American Religion explores the way religion connects with law and politics on topics ranging from religion in Hawaii to the culture of yoga. Our co-hosts are Ira Bedzo, the director of the Miriam Institute Project in International Ethics and Leadership, and Matthew Cavadon, the Robert Poole Fellow in Law and Religion. In this series, they'll be talking with authors from this volume and asking not only about the text and their inspiration behind the chapter, but also its timeliness today. In today's episode, Matt and Ira speak with Winifred Fowler Sullivan, Provost Professor in Religious Studies at Indiana University, where she teaches courses on religion, law, and the politics of religious freedom, among other topics. Sullivan is the author of many books, including four which analyze legal discourses about religion. She's also the co-editor of At Home and Abroad. Her essay, The Rule of Law, explores the ways that religious law and secular law overlap and diverge in an American setting. Sullivan uses the experience of one of her former students who seek due process after being excommunicated from the church to set the scene for the essay. Along with examining the mindset of the student, the three discuss the beginnings of American legal history, the complexity surrounding the term fundamentalism, and the benefits of categorizing the political and the religious. All this and more on today's episode of Interactions. Brought to you by the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University. We are here today with Winifred Fowler's Sullivan. She is a professor at the University of Indiana in the Religious Studies program. She is also an affiliate professor of the law school there and the co-director of the Center for Religion and the Human. She also happens to be the co-editor of the volume we've been discussing this series, at home and abroad on issues involving American policies in both the domestic and international spheres and religion. Winifred, thank you very much for joining us and taking time out of your week to be here. I would like to start by introducing our viewers to an interesting anecdote you tell about a student of yours who, after he was disfellowshipped from a Protestant church that he was affiliated with, complained that he didn't feel like he had received proper due process. You note in your chapter that that seemed like an interesting thing for him to claim, that he was entitled to American-esque constitutional protections within a church setting. Let me ask you a meta question. Why do you think so many people believe that American legal history 
starts with our founding and not with the canon law or Roman law background that might have shaped how that student's church approached his proceedings? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, maybe it's several questions, a uh, kind of compound question there. I think um, well, part of this might have to do with how uh, history is taught in the U.S. Um, I do think that uh, for many Americans, history really begins in the U.S. Um, and and the, the U.S. has a very distinctive, even sort of exceptional history, particularly with respect to religion. What are some of the reasons why Americans have this sense that yeah, our legal history only began 200 years ago, and that therefore churches and other more traditional bodies really shouldn't have any sort of legal norms that structure how they approach things. Um, so, well, I, I would say that the most distinctive aspect of, of Amer American uh, law about religion is disestablishment. Um, and I over the years, as I've had ongoing conversations, particularly with Europeans, um, I find that, but also with Canadians, so really almost anyone out, anyone outside of the U.S., I find that our, uh, that we talk past one another. And I think one of the reasons is that we are speaking of a different object when we talk about the religion as either. Uh, protected or disestablished or separated or regulated in some way. And I think that that is because of disestablishment, so that um, the churches in these other places um, had a, long, a, a prior history of relationship with the state and are, were institutionalized in different ways and remained uh, in relationship with, and then grew up with the state, if you like. Um, and so that after separation, they legally recognized each other. Whereas I think in the U.S., disestablishment meant that there really was no church. Um, there is a church in the sort of legal imagination in the U.S., but there is no church in the way that is meant in, for example, European history. And I think that that do-it-yourself quality of American religion is 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 one of the reasons that Americans um, have this particular view of the relationship of religion and law. Are there also ways in which American, perhaps Protestants especially, or maybe just American Christians in general, set religion off from law in a way that they would think that law is just not appropriate for the religious setting. Does that contribute to that sense of difference as well? Yes, I mean, there's, I don't know if you know um, an article by Marianne Case called Marriage Licenses, um, which is an interesting exploration of American law about marriage. And this was, this is maybe now 20 years ago. Uh, I can't remember the exact uh, date of the article. And what led her to she called me, I didn't know her before, to ask me about Protestant views of marriage. And she was particularly interested in why Americans cared about other people's marriages and why um, American Protestants were sometimes quoted as saying that same-sex marriage or gay marriage 
threatened their own marriages. Um, and that was what puzzled her. And when she did research, what she discovered was that when surveyed, um, American Catholics and Jews tended, a lower percentage of American Catholics and Jews um, actually objected to same-sex marriage than Protestants. And she concluded that because American Catholics and Jews have their own legal systems which regulate marriage, the state regulation of marriage was less of an issue for them, whereas she would understand Protestants to have, in a sense, given over the regulation of marriage to the state so that the state is performing a religious task for the Protestant church. You know, Winifred, that's so interesting. And, you know, not that my experience is objective at all. Um, I am only an N of one, but it, it, your your um, discussion of, of of how Catholics and Jews might look at uh, secular marriage vis-a-vis -vis, uh, religious rights of marriage, um, I, I get it totally. I mean, uh, the way uh, my experience has been both as a as a rabbi and as a uh, observant Jew has been uh, that there's two different types of marriages in America. Religious Jews go through both of them. Uh, one is uh, speaks to who they are religiously, and one speaks to them as as a member of a civil society. Um, and they have different foundational premises, different reasons for uh, 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 or purpose for for why they are um, obligatory or um, uh, a right, whether it's a civil right or a, a, or a religious right, uh, R-I-T-E, not R-I-G-H-D. Um, and th then that's it. Um, but when we go back, and I'm also really interested in this student um, who came to you and, and you write about in the introduction to your chapter, especially in your discussion of disestablishment, it seems as if the student didn't conflate uh, uh, American uh, uh, procedural due process um, with uh, religion completely, but well, actually, I don't want to make assumptions. How did this, what was the student's psychology? What was the student's background in understanding his due process, right? What did he see it as a, as a moral right or good? Was he confusing religious congregations with American society writ large? What was what was happening uh, that this student was so incensed by by his experience? I think that that actually is quite a complicated, complicated um, question to answer, which I guess is what led me to try to write this piece, which is really a think piece um, more than it is um, uh, really a, a seriously complete uh, answer to that question. Um, so I would say that he was not confused. Um, I would say that in his uh, indignation at uh, feeling that the church judicatory had not um, honored his due process rights, um, he was actually in that instant kind of speaking for uh, a whole um, hundreds of years of history in, in the ways in which formal church process and secular legal process have grown up together and overlapped. So that he was in a sense speaking both as um, an American 
for whom the language of due process is part of our public conversation and our right to due process is something that um, we share as Americans. But I think also speaking out of his specific, very specific Presbyterian context, he was speaking um, about a, uh, a history of church law um, that, uh, that also incorporates a sense of due process. So he was, I think, doing both simultaneously. This is so interesting. I want to dig a little deeper on this because um, in one respect, whether it's law or history, it's set an expectation for the student. And uh, what what I can imagine in sense the student was uh, that his expectations weren't met, whether that was like a formal legal uh, system that established the expectations uh, or just a, a history of quote unquote precedent or, or you know, common procedure that would, would set that expectations. Um, but what what interests me about this and and, and, a, and a question more about re religion and how religion um, sees itself or re religious adherents see themselves vis-a-vis um, -vis the religion in America uh, is the relationship between uh, law uh, and faith. Um, I know you mentioned Jews and, and Catholics are a legal-based religion, um, but what does that mean in terms of, of Protestant Christianity in America? given the students' expectations and, and, and what you've seen in your scholarship as well? Of course, there are many different kinds of Protestants. And, um, yes, and I sorry, think, sorry to paint with a, a, broad, a broad brush there. No, that's okay. I mean, you know, that's my job as a, as a scholar of religion to always say, uh, you know, we've got to be really careful about these words and the generalizing uh, of, of these words, maybe particularly in the U.S. context where Sometimes Protestants seem to look like Catholics and sometimes Catholics seem to look like Protestants, you know. Um, you know, I think if you, um, you know, I, I recently um, wrote an article about um, juries and the use of biblical citation and biblical quotes in the context of criminal juries, especially in death penalty cases, and the effort of um, many American judges to, and lawyers to, uh, to, to sort of rid the jury room of biblical scriptural reference or any kind of biblical language and to prohibit uh, lawyers also and witnesses from using uh, scriptural language. And I think what, what you find uh, in the studies that have been done about how juries think about their decisions, especially the um, you know, during the death penalty phase, you find um, Americans, of course, bringing their religious ideas about way to think about uh, guilt and to think about human motivation um, into the way that they make their judgments in those cases. That's not quite answering your question in the sense that I'm, I'm not sure that Americans think in a kind of abstract way about how does my faith relate to law. I think that for many, perhaps most Americans, um, religious understandings of, of, the, of, of the human person and of, of their motivation and of right and wrong are very religiously inflected. 
you you discuss in particular that you think that neoliberal ideas about American law and the law and economics movement have denied American legal thought some important resources for thinking through morality and justice, resources that might be provided by some of those religious foundations of the law. Do you also think that the critical legal movement has contributed to uh, stripping law of some of those important moral foundations? I mean, I actually think that um, what's sometimes called law and theology movement, which I think is part of critical legal studies, broadly understood sort of historically in terms of um, the ways in which legal thinkers in the U.S. sought to um, you know, find resources for critiquing perhaps certain kinds of more sort of mechanistic or instrumentalized uh, scientific kinds of views of law. Yes. So I would say that that critical legal studies includes uh, religious versions of critical legal studies, if that makes sense. Um, I want to ask you something that you write in your chapter, which is gave me a lot of food for thought, but I, I didn't know how to digest it. Um, you, you said that uh, fundamentalism is a word that obscures rather than clarifies. What did what do you mean by this, and and what type of clarity are are you seeking, um, which the term fundamentalism is not providing? And is there a word that might be more appropriate? So uh, fundamentalism, of course, comes from a very specific uh, historical event, um, which is uh, which arises out of the response of some Protestant churches in the U.S. to various, partly uh, to Darwin, to new forms of geology, but also to uh, uh, forms of uh, historical approaches to reading the biblical text. Um, and that in response to these 19th century, the, the importation from Europe to some extent of 19th century, um, you know, intellectual movements, uh, a group of of Protestant churches uh, responded by publishing the 12 fundamentals, which were a kind of declaration of, of what was essential to Christianity in, in response. So for people who study American religion, this is what we always say is, you know, that's what the fundamentals are. And, to, and, and, and so there's a tendency to want to kind of not necessarily see readily see parallels because that has such a specific origin in the in the US context. Um, I think another problem with sometimes with the word fundamentalism is that it can be understood to suggest that particular religious groups, not just Protestants, are somehow uh, backward looking or not modern. Uh, whereas most historians of religion would consider fundamentalists or th those religious groups that are denominated um, as fundamentalist to be actually very modern because both of their response to uh, modern conditions, uh, but also the ways in which they selectively um, both seek to return to certain aspects of what they understand to be the essentials of their past, but also that many 
um, such movements also are, for example, technologically very sophisticated and in other ways are not at all sort of backward uh, in the way that people imagine. So, so it just, the problem with the word fundamentalist is it, it doesn't really say anything um, helpful and it, and it conflates a bunch of uh, aspects of modern religiosity and modern religious movement perhaps better um, described without such a, a word. I'm, I'm so sorry to betray my my ignorance on this, but does does uh, is the word not helpful for uh, for for the general population, or like is it also unhelpful for people who call themselves or we would call fundamentalists? I mean, I I wouldn't tell someone they can't call themselves whatever they want to call themselves. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, of so course, I, I but mean, does it mean something different when it, it's used uh, internally in a in, in a congregation versus when it's used? Uh, I'm not uh, sure it is facing. ever used internally. Um, uh, I mean, I guess, well, that's not true, actually. So, for example, I think it has begun to be used as a self-description. For example, some uh, Mormon Mormon groups that uh, dissent from uh, the mainstream Mormon church today uh, call themselves fundamentalist uh, Latter-day Saints. So, yes, I think what they're doing there in terms of naming themselves as dissenters or in opposition to um, other groups is similar, a, a similar movement perhaps to what's happened at the end of the 19th century, although, of course, it's both the same and different. Um, I think it's often used with a very negative valence um, in in the media and and perhaps by uh by other people in public conversation um you know it's funny there's a which is not useful (laughs) in my view so there's a similarity i mean it's not exactly a similarity but there's a parallel uh so within um either you would say orthodox or ultra orthodox judaism you have groups of like hasidim and mitznagdim or mitznagdim um, and traditionally, misnagdim were not uh, was not a self-identifying phrase. It was used by people who said they were against the Hasidim, because um, uh, misnagdim actually means like in opposition to or, or against. Uh, but then it became uh, almost a, a self-identifying marker for a while um, to define oneself vis-a-vis someone else or in contradistinction to someone else. Uh, and then it dropped out of favor. Um, and now it's not really it's not really used um, just because it served its purpose for a while, and then no, and 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 then it had this similar problems of either being too jargony or having negative connotation or or, or prejudice when used. Um, so the term then yes, is, and of course it's been used. Um, it has been used a good deal in the last uh, twenty five years um, uh, with respect to Muslims and in mostly entirely unhelpful ways and usually with negative connotations. You know, Winifred, I want to ask you a question about the Constitution, especially since you mentioned it a bit in your chapter. 
Uh, how much is the Constitution seen as a secular Bible, not only in terms of its um, the sacred nature of it, but also in terms of its its veracity or its truth nature? Um, and in addition, you say that you know this uh, looking at uh, the Constitution similar to a Bible or the Bible is similar to the Constitution is a uniquely American uh, experience. Um, but is it uniquely American when you uh, in terms of it being a uniquely uh, Protestant Christian experience, or would you say even American Jews or American Muslims have, have similar uh, views in terms of the the relationship or the similarity between the Constitution and uh, their sacred texts? So I, I certainly I'm I'm not a sociologist. I don't have any kind of survey data about about what you just asked. Um, so I would be speculating or sort of basing this on, um, you know, my, my experience reading about these communities, knowing about these communities. Let me say, first of all, that one of the ways in which the U.S. Constitution is distinctive compared with other constitutions in the world, if, of course, is the difficulty of its being amended. And so in that sense, it is more fixed and in that way, uh, similar to scripture. So that it seems to me that um, you know methods of reading the U.S. Constitution and interpreting the U.S. Constitution, and many people have observed this, have this have a similar kind of um, style to the way people read Scripture because of the way it's canonically fixed in a way that seems uh, analogous to scriptural canon, right? So that not being able to amend the U.S. Constitution easily leads those who want to change its interpretation to uh, interpretive strategies that are similar to the way um, uh, people interpret scripture, which is also fixed. So I think that is one quality that the U.S. Constitution has that makes it distinctive from other constitutions. But it also has a kind of sacred quality as anybody who you know, you go to the National Archives in D.C. and see it under glass, um, you know, the original copies of it. So I think that there is a way and there's a sacralization of the American founding in many different ways. And I think many Americans share that sacralization. You discuss in your chapter also the phrase horizons of natural justice, which might be a nod toward that sacralization. Have you seen that in non-European or non-Christian stories about law as well? Understanding, again, that you may not have survey numbers, but is that something that you've encountered? You know, law is universal and religion is universal in human societies, and they're, they're interrelated everywhere. Um, so using law now not just to refer to modern secular law, but uh, in a broader sense. Um, so I would say that, that yes, uh, everywhere, religious understandings of the human person and religious understandings, cosmologically, part of law, and, our, and law depends on those kinds of understandings everywhere. But there are different ways in which the history of the, the institutional history of uh, the formal uh, institutions of religion and political governance are related to each other in different ways in different places, of course. So to build off of that in the United States where popular sovereignty is such an important concept, 
as is the idea of a voluntary church, especially in a lot of Protestant settings. How does that shape American attitudes towards law? Does it make Americans think about sacralization differently? Does it drive anti-institutional attitudes? Whatever direction you want to take that in. <laughs> that's a that's a pretty broad question. Yeah, I I don't know. I think I think and again this and this is something that I've learned partly from my conversations with uh, European colleagues that the lack of a church or a state in the U.S. but instead we the people being in charge of both religion and governance um, does create a particularly um, unstable field um, in both in both domains, um, and so I think that makes the U.S. distinctive. I mean, with respect to law, I would say that um, also the way the exceptionalist way in which U.S. law largely refuses international law and jurisdiction um, also uh, makes it distinctive. And, and almost illegible to Europeans. <laughs> um, you know, I think that the uh, the particular, uh, particularly voluntarist nature of, and sort of almost do-it-yourself quality of American religion is confusing to many Europeans. Jennifer, this has been um, really helpful and very, very, um, insight, uh, insightful thinking about not only the chapter, but I want to go back and I'm still thinking about your student. So I want to ask this, this last, <laughs> I know it's crazy. I still want to ask, I want to ask about this, um, the, not only the student, but seeing the student almost as a, a as a, a lens to see the, a broader American religious phenomenon and um, ask your, your thoughts on the relationship between the religious and the political, you could say the legal or, 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 or the social um, in terms of you know uh, whether uh, you have a civic religion or a theological religion, or whether you have a religious community that has either a history or a law that sets expectations for process and, and procedure, um, have these terms of religious or political or these domains become so blended that parsing them into two separate categories is ultimately unproductive or, do you think that having these these realms distinct is is still helpful? Um, what what are your thoughts as a religion scholar um, in terms of the relationship between uh, religion and other civic or social uh, lenses or or domains that intersect with with religion? Well, I would say that the context in which we're having this conversation, although I would say not something that characterizes this conversation itself, is of course one of deep polarization in this country and and of um, a constant recourse to, to, to various bina binaries, you know, secular, religious, conservative, liberal, right, left, um, and that those binaries are um, really preventing us from understanding each other and living together in ethical ways. I think that um, descriptively speaking, uh, that this separation is not possible in the U.S., in part because we don't have the kind of institutionalization that would be characterized, um, for example, in 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 most of Europe, but and, and differently in in other parts of the world. But also, 
you know, even there, of course, uh, the formal institutional uh, separation belies what is, of course, also there, um, a blurred and overlapping relationship between um, ideas and institutions uh, in those places. So I think descriptively speaking, from, from my perspective, I think this is a helpful moment to think about how so-called religious and so-called secular uh, domains share a good deal and can learn from one another and not to police that border. I think policing that border uh, has resulted in a fairly sterile public conversation. But that doesn't mean that modes of governance will not still tend to specialize in various ways. I guess I think we need, um, we need a, a period of fluidity in order to regroup, if that makes sense. I don't know, I get to talk in this um, uh, sermonic way because I'm, I'm an older citizen. No, look, whatever, I get it. Um, you know, in some respects, it's it's helpful to have boxes to put things in, to speak, you know, bluntly and uh, unintellectually. Um, well, at the same time, once you put something in a in a box, you may be framing it in such a way that provides clarity at, at some points, but also uh, limits your ability to analyze it um, and see the relationships between boxes. Um, and having the fluidity um, sometimes allows for uh, a broader perspective um, and clarity, even if you would, even if that seems counterintuitive. Yes, I think so. We certainly appreciate you bringing a theoretical lens to our discussion that I don't think we've had yet to be able to dig into these deeper ideas of how history and modernity have competed in shaping current ideas around law and religion in the United States in particular. So thank you. And thank you for your work in compiling this volume. It's been a super interesting season so far on interactions discussing the various authors and your vision for drawing all these folks together and having them talk to one another was absolutely fascinating. So we really appreciate the hard work that you and your fellow contributors and co-editor did in putting this volume together. So thank you. Uh, you're welcome. It was a lot of fun. Thank you, Winifred Fowler Sullivan, for joining us in this discussion, and thank you all for listening. If you'd like to stay updated on new and upcoming episodes, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe. The Interactions podcast is distributed by the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University and Campy Forum, and produced by Ethan Anthony.